Well, thank you for allowing me to be in worship and community with you guys again this morning. Our sermon text this morning comes from the Gospel of John, and uh, I always have a problem with the Gospel of John. Whenever it comes up on my daily devotional readings, I just, just something in my gut. John is a brilliant author, and his text is so dense that sometimes I'm having to reread through it multiple times just to get my head around it. And so, um, to that end, two things. One is, um, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? So we're going to take this in sections as we go throughout the sermon this morning, so we won't do a reading on the front end. But secondly, let me ask for the Father's help uh, this morning to illuminate our hearts and minds. Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray now that you would bring it to bear upon our lives, that you would illuminate your text in our hearts and minds. And Father, as a people this morning, we recognize that we come from a variety of places spiritually this morning, both irreligious as well as religious. And we pray, Jesus, that you would come in our midst this morning and you would be something altogether radically different and that you would meet us where we're at. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. This week, I was uh, in a meeting with a native Oregonian, which is becoming a bit of a rare species, endangered species here uh, in Portland. But uh, this person was recounting how his family had lived here for generations and how different the city felt even just 50 years ago, how that his family had worked in blue-collar occupations, building ships, stuff like that here in Portland. Once upon a time, in a sense, we were the Pittsburgh of the West Coast. But now, 40 or 50 years has passed, and here in Portland, we've undergone a bit of a cultural renaissance. We've become a very progressive city, a model city, really, for the nation. If you think about how we care for our homeless population here, those that are impoverished, in some sense, it's unparalleled amongst cities in the West. We have an advanced transportation system. If you think about how that we're able to be participants in an urban core and yet have so readily access to so many things outdoors, the beach, the coast, the mountains, not to mention the unparalleled food and drink that we enjoy here. I think amongst so many American cities, this place more than any other, it feels like heaven. You know, the way the world ought to be the way the world will one day be. But it's interesting, if we were to push just beyond the surface, beyond those questions of what and how, and dig deeper into the question of why, that question that is undergirding everything, the question that's underneath it all, I think that we would be surprised. We would be surprised by our disillusionment. In 1830, French historian and politician Alexis de Tocqueville, he observed American culture and he noted a strange melancholy that haunts the inhabitants in the midst of abundance. A strange melancholy that haunts the inhabitants in the midst of abundance. I think that aptly describes what's underneath it for those of us who live here in Portland. We live in this, quote-unquote, brave new world, this city that we love. 
Even that, even that phrase, Brave New World, it was originally co- uh, coined by William Shakespeare uh, in the play The Tempest. Some of you know it. You'll remember one of the main characters, um, Meridian, she was there on this island. She had grown up on this island, completely isolated from the broader world. And, and she longed, she dreamed what it would be like to meet people from the outside. And then one day this, this ship arrives on the island and she gets so excited to finally meet civilized people. And she proclaims the entrance of a brave new world. But what she didn't know is that ship was filled with some of the worst of humanity. It speaks to this disenchantment that we feel here in Portland. The 20th century uh, author Aldous Huxley in his dystopian fiction bearing the same name, Brave New World, he speaks of all of our technological advancement set far into the future, and yet for all of our advancement, we're still disappointed. And we feel that here in Portland, the shift from away from modernism, rational thinking, scientific metrics, to this postmodern experience of rooting our lives in experience, in relationships, and yet through it all, we're still asking why. There is still this haunting disillusionment with civilization. How do, we, how do we get there? How do we answer that deeper question of why? Well, I think that the Gospel of John, chapter 1, God meets us in that question of why through the person of Jesus. And so we're going to look at two primary things here this morning of how Jesus addresses our why. The first thing is we're going to see Jesus disrupting our why. And then secondly, we're going to see Jesus renewing our why. Disruption and renewal. First, we see uh, Jesus meeting us at the core of our soul in this disruption. Uh, For us, uh, some of you know that we're planting a church for the communities south of Powell, and there is so much excitement that's been building for us, and we're beginning to connect with people and meet people who are beginning to share that excitement with us. And if you've ever launched a business, if you've ever started in a new career, you know that feeling. You're standing on the edge of a precipice and you feel like something significant is about to happen. First century readers, even as we read here today, as we begin John chapter 1, verse 1, that's the feeling that we have. And as we begin to read this text, that something significant is about to happen. And so we read, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, you can refer to your bulletin. There's a, there's a phrase uh, in your reading, uh, in the English translation, that is the word, and I'm going to substitute how the Greeks heard it originally with the phrase divine logos. In the beginning was the divine logos, and the divine logos was with God, and the divine logos was God. He was with God in the beginning, Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. You know, here, especially in the first century, there was something for everyone here in this text. If you were part of the religious Jewish audience, you totally connected with this text. You heard phrases like, in the beginning, a light that was shining into the darkness, that was prevailing. There was the use of God throughout these verses. 
And if you were Jewish reading this for the very first time, you were thinking to yourself, there's all sorts of clues that have to do with the story of my people. That what John is about to say here, it has something to do with Yahweh. And it has something to do with creation. All of these phrases, they hearken back to Genesis chapter 1 when God was creating the world. What could he be doing now through the person of Christ? But they had this preconceived notion of who God ought to be, of who the Messiah who was to come ought to be. And religiously in that day, they were thinking, we are the people of God. And we are expecting a Messiah to come and provide tangible rescue for us from the jackboot of Rome. So where there was this dissonance as they read. But it wasn't just for the religious, but it was also for the irreligious Greek audience. That was uh, tipped off by the use of the word logos here throughout the original text. Originally, this word logos it meant a whole variety of things. There was all sorts of meaning packed into this word logos. It means a ground, an expectation, an account, or a reason. The philosopher Heraclitus in the 5th century BC, he used this as a technical term that meant a principle for order or knowledge. Later on, Aristotle would use logos to refer to a reason discourse or an argument. I like this definition best that came from the Stoics. They used it as the divine animating principle pervading the universe. It sounds like Portland, the divine animating principle pervading the universe. There are many uses in original Greek culture, but they all centered on this whole notion of the eternal reason for our existence. Um, Tim Keller in New York, uh, he described the definition of logos as the reason why we get out of bed every morning. So irreligiously, you were hearing this, you were hearing about the logos, but you too had these presuppositions, these preconceived notions about what the logos ought to be. And in your mind, you were thinking, we are the rational thinkers of our culture. We are the intelligentsia. And we will discover the next novel idea that provides the rationale for our existence. As I was thinking about this in both a religious and an irreligious connotation, I came across an article by Eric Asimov, who's a wine critic that writes for the New York Times. There's an article, A Wine Critic's Realm Isn't a Democracy. This is in the front of your bulletin, but listen to what Asimov says about objectivity as it pertains to wine criticism. The notion of objectivity seems attractive, connotating freedom from bias. But in writing about wine, it's ultimately a sham. It's not possible to eliminate all matters of context, personal experience, extrapolation, and aesthetic ideals. These are, in fact, what constitute judgment. What's wanted in the end is not some sort of imagined neutrality, but fairness, openness, and honesty. You know, it's profound. Asimov there, he's, he's not just writing about wine. He's writing, writing about worldview. He's writing about how we approach life. That our eternal reason for being, it's not objective. Something that's just kind of fun to talk about over coffee, but it's something that's intensely personal. And the question that God lays before us first here this morning is, who will define our logos? Who will define our reason for being? Will that be God 
or will that be us? And in the first century, as these readers were coming across this text in both a religious and irreligious fashion, they answered that question by saying, we will define our existence, not God. We've cast a mold as to who Yahweh ought to be, as to who the Lagos ought to be. We will provide that definition. And Jesus here in the first five verses of John chapter 1, he comes and he just blows the whole thing up. And notice more specifically what John says about Jesus. This is a prologue about the person of Jesus. Jesus is the eternal foundation for all of existence and reality. Jesus is Yahweh himself. He is God the Son, a person that is separate from God the Father, yet connected in a triune way. Jesus is the creator of everything that we see around us. And life is in Jesus. And Jesus is the one who animates everything. And it's through his power, the power of Christ, that chaos and darkness in this world is overcome. And so the very first thing John is saying is that Jesus uniquely is the one that can answer the deepest why question of our soul. So whatever we want to call it, our Messiah our Lagos, our Elan Vatel, our reason for being. Jesus is saying, I am that. So we see Jesus as really the ultimate why in his person. But interestingly enough, as a person, he disagrees with us. And I think this is compelling. Um, if you move down to John chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, John writes, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Notice the juxtapositions there, that Jesus was in the world, but he was not of the world. He was something altogether different. That Jesus made the world, but yet when he came to his creation, his creation didn't recognize their creator that he came actually to his people that in the past he had rescued, but those that were rescued did not recognize their rescuer. That Jesus came as a light to illuminate the world. But in the end, both religiously and irreligiously, we as humanity, we said, no, we got this thing. We can do this. The people of God in the day of Jesus, they longed for a military leader, the Greek philosophers, they longed for an idea. And none of them ever expected a redeemer like this. Um, Amanda and I fight a good bit. Um, I don't know if we're anything like you guys, but um, a couple of months ago, uh, we had a fight that I'll never forget. We, um, we were in the midst of this argument, and I was kind of the first one to escalate it, so I raised my voice and really challenged her. And, uh, and I thought I had done the deal, so I walk out of the room and I'm like, bam, that's over. And my wife is not a weak woman. And so she comes wheeling around the corner and she just escalates it even, even further and just lays into me. And, uh, and I just stand there in awe. And I, I just know that she has found me out. And uh, I just sit there in a stunned silence knowing that she's right. You know, it's interesting that, that in my marriage, I don't want a Stepford wife and so why so many times do we want to step for God? A God of our own making, our own creation, a God that we can boss around. 
And, and what Jesus is doing here that's just so shattering is he's saying, no, I am God, I am a person, and I disagree with you at many turns and different points in your life. And so one of the significant questions here this morning is, is where is God disagreeing with you this morning? I think most of us, if we're honest here this morning, like we sense that from God. We sense his disagreement. And we're asking ourselves the question, how should we respond? And, and perhaps God's calling you to something and you're thinking to yourself, no way, God, I, I'm not going to do that. Uh, perhaps God's speaking into a relationship that you have, a relationship that you know is not healthy for you, and he's calling you out of that. And you're thinking, I, it's, it just feels too risky to leave this relationship. Maybe it's an area of enslavement that, that paradoxically, in enslavement, we both enjoy our enslavement and we hate it. And God's trying to rescue us from that place. And to be honest, we don't want to be rescued. Maybe it's the, just the whole entirety of your worldview. Maybe something comes to mind. Maybe perhaps it's something a little more subconscious and it does have to do with the deepest why of your soul. And here in Portland, we're all about experience and relationship. That's where we invest our life. And so many times we come to experience and relationship and we're trying to ask the why question to experience in relationship as if we can just mine meaning out of everything we can encounter. And it reminds me of my bike commute uh, on Tuesday this week. I get about halfway to work and my back tire blows out and I didn't have a spare tube. And so, um, you know how it is, those of you who've experienced that, you're riding along and you hear the subtle hiss and you just ignore it for a couple of seconds and you're thinking, no, that, that can't be true. And you just keep riding, but eventually you begin to feel it. And you begin to be that place where it just becomes exhausting to pedal. And you know that you're going to make yourself exhausted and you're going to just totally um, destroy your rim if you keep riding. And I think that's an apt example of, of how we treat experience and relationship here. We come to those things and we're trying to press into them these deepest questions of meaning, these questions of why. And where does it leave us? It leaves us exhausted. It leaves us longing for meaning. It, it, we, we end up doing damage to those experiences, those people around us. We end up developing a user culture. Follow your heart. What's at the very bottom? Said another way, follow the yellow brick road. And so many times we're so excited because we think we're going to arrive at the Emerald City. But in the interior of our heart, we pull back the curtain and we find something altogether different. In the cross, Jesus comes and he takes away our exhaustion. He takes away the damage that we do to ourselves, the damage that we do to others, and we are invited to go to Jesus to answer that deepest question of why in a way that will transform all of reality. And Jesus transforms our reality through the power of the resurrection. And it's interesting that in the resurrection, God gives us not just a simple answer to the why, he doesn't give us just an idea, a notion, but God gives us a person. 
And in the resurrection, in the ascension, God pours out his spirit and God as a person in the third person of the Trinity comes and inhabits our soul. And it's there that the Holy Spirit answers the deepest why of our heart. Jesus comes and he disrupts our why, but he also renews our why. And he does it by his grace. I'm a pretty type A person, and I wake up almost every morning in a state of, of near panic and anxiety of, uh, of things that I have to do, emails that I need to check. I don't know if, if any of you guys are like this, but the first thing I do is grab my phone and see what emails came in over the past seven hours um, and what I need to start getting working on. And uh, I think that's a testimony of how each and every day I want to save myself. And every morning, God has to come and remind me that I'm saved by my belonging with him. And we see this in verses 12 through 13. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Born of God. His power alone. I love what psychologist Dan Allender says about this movement away from saving ourselves and this movement to just resting in God the Father, our relationship with him. Dan Allender writes this, the cost for the recipient of God's grace is nothing and no price could be higher for arrogant people to pay. Something within me that feels noble longs for a religion that requires payment. I may like an occasional free gift, but I cannot bear the loss of pride and swagger that occurs when I give my life and nothing is required. Grace is free, and that is disturbing. Do we feel that? Grace is disturbing. This disruption, this, this renewal that comes by way of the resurrection, it really changes who we are, and, and it changes what we do. Um, I came across an article a couple of months ago that uh, recounted the 1964 World's Fair. Some of you guys remember the World's Fair that happened in the, in the 20th century. And these were just such exciting times that um, all of these new innovations uh, were coming onto the scene. Um, it's kind of like when Apple does their big reveal now of their new products. Um, that's what the World's Fairs were all about. And in 1964, Bell Telephone Company, they introduced the world's first video phone. And you can actually go home and watch on YouTube. Um, they, they filmed this, this whole first time that a video phone worked. And Bell Telephone executives, they were sitting at this desk, and they turn on a television, and then, and then they have like this receiver, and they talk to people that are hundreds of miles away, and everyone's in awe. It was really if you think about it, a preview to FaceTime or Google Hangouts, something like that. And in a sense, that's what Jesus is doing here in verse 14 and really in all of his ministry. In verse 14, it says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. You see, the person of Jesus was not just a historical figure, and now somehow that we follow his teachings. No, instead, Jesus was a historical figure 
that now comes and inhabits our soul and begins to change the world from the inside out. And so what we understand about the ministry of Jesus is it was a preview of what God would do in the generations to come. That as Jesus was teaching, as he was healing, as people were being set free, as they were finding meaning and purpose, this was not just exclusive to the ministry of Jesus, but this is what God wants to do through our life, day in and day out. And so it really changes who we are. We are a portal for a heavenly kingdom to come here on earth. And so it changes who we are. It changes what we do. That as for the Greeks, we have the logos dwelling inside of us. And, uh, and this changes what we do. We see this lastly in verses 6 through 7 through the person of John the Baptist. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. It seems kind of odd. Uh, John is speaking in all of these high terms about God and Jesus. He's talking about God's entrance into this world. Then all of a sudden, out of left field in verses 6 and 7, he begins to talk about John the Baptist. What gives? I think why John the Baptist is in this text is because it's showing us a, a model for our own life. It's showing us for what it means to have God come and inhabit our soul. That what we see in John's life is that he wasn't the light, but he was testifying to this light. That through the life of John, that God's heavenly kingdom was being put on display in everyday, ordinary ways. And that is our hope. That is what we do as we wake up and go to work in the morning. That is what we do as we change diapers. That's what we do as we shepherd our children. That's what we do as we're there for a neighbor during a time of grieving. We are putting on display the kingdom of God that through us is coming to renew this world, now in part, one day in full. This last quote that's in your bulletin, it comes from a friend of mine named Ben Cox. He's not a theologian. He's not a spiritual writer. But I think this is a testimony of God's renewal coming through all of us. Um, and so, here, Ben. We see Jesus in the things that stir the deepest longings of our heart and make us discontent. Moments of deep communion and camaraderie with friends. Glimpses of transcendent beauty in the created world and creative works of humankind. Tastes of deep intimacy and romantic relationships. There is a competing narrative marketing in our society that says that these sorts of experiences are created by bringing beer to a party, posting all of our unique interests on Facebook, taking exotic vacations or sexual freedom. But we believe that these experiences are so much greater. They are encounters with Jesus as the one in triune community with God, as creator, as the bridegroom of the church. And so we see that as Jesus answers the deeper why question of our soul and we move out into experience and relationship, it renews those things, that we finally get those things. Those things click in a heavenly way and it begins to transform existence around us. I'll end um, with this, this story. 
So many of you know we moved here in June and we went a couple of months ago to get our driver's license here in Oregon. And if you've ever moved here or moved back here, this driver's license exam, as you know, it's no joke. Um, I did four years of graduate school and I don't know if I ever took a harder test than this DMV test. And uh, we, were, we were speed reading through the DMV manual. You know, there's intense questions about what do you do if there's a horse on the side of the road, those sorts of things. And uh, this, is, uh, this is difficult, but it was, it was really interesting. As a man and I drove away from the DMV, all of a sudden we were hyper aware to everything on the road. It was like we recognized the signage, what all those signs meant. We saw construction workers. We operated our vehicle with caution. We stopped at lights. I mean, it, it, was, it was just all of a sudden organic and natural that was just flowing out of us. And I asked the question, why was that? And it was because we had immersed ourselves in this DMV manual. We had just taken this test. And you know, I think in some sense, that's a picture of what the the Christian life is really all about. That that is, is God is, is inhabiting our soul. It's not about choosing behaviors. It's about God living and breathing through us. So that when we're in a meeting this week, we're talking to a neighbor, or we're on public transportation, that we're really hearing from God, and we're following him, and we're responding to him, and we're actually co-authors with this new story that he's writing, this story of recreation. And so our life becomes not a dystopian fiction. Our life becomes a work of nonfiction, a work of reality a work of renewal, that in Christ that it really is possible to come to know a brave new world. Let's pray. Father, we pray that out of this text that that much would be made of Jesus. And we're just so thankful as as we recognize our brokenness um, and our fragileness. We're just so thankful that we have the opportunity to live by faith in you and for Jesus to inhabit our soul. In a sense, for Jesus to haunt us instead of restlessness. So we pray, come, haunt us this week. Let us know meaning. And Lord, would your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.